If you would turn in your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 6, we'll read verses 10 through chapter 7, verse 29, in just a moment. Uh, I am a big music fan. I love all kinds of genres of music, from ambient to hip-hop to punk to new wave to 80s pop to classic rock to movie soundtracks. You may rightly define my music tastes as eclectic, but there are a couple of notable exceptions. I am not a fan of almost any modern country music. So don't hate, see I'm just making enemies right now. Listen, if if you're mad at me when I say that, there's music that I like you don't like, so we're even. And I say modern country because I do love me some Johnny Cash. Listen, all present who want a constant diet of songs about cold beer and dirt roads, you feel, feel free to have at it. That's, that's fine. There are a few notable exceptions over the years for me that have stuck out, and one of them is a song called Live Like You Were Dying by Tim McGraw. You may be familiar with that song. It peaked at number one and spent 86 weeks on the Billboard charts in 2004 and five. In it, a man shares his experience of getting a terminal medical diagnosis. And he says in this, as he considered his impending death and the effect it had on him, quote, I was finally the husband that most of the time I wasn't. And I became a friend, a friend would like to have. And all of a sudden, going fishing wasn't such an imposition. And I went three times that year I lost my dad. Well, I finally read the good book, and I took a good, long, hard look at what I'd do if I could do it all again. And I went skydiving, I went Rocky Mountain climbing, I went 2.7 seconds on a bull named Fu Manchu, and I loved deeper, and I spoke sweeter, and I gave forgiveness I'd been denying. And he said, someday, I hope you get the chance to live like you were dying. Like tomorrow is a gift and you've got eternity to think about. What you do with it? What could you do with it? What did I do with it? What would I do with it? I think these lyrics illustrate and reflect much of what we are learning in our study of Ecclesiastes. In this divinely inspired book of ancient wisdom, we are consistently reminded that life in the scheme of things, is brief and passing. We are all facing the reality of death, and instead of trying to avoid the issue and escape from having to think about it, we are called to sober-minded realism so that we can live our lives fruitfully in light of this coming certainty. And our text this morning continues to show us this important way for us to live. So... Let's take a seat in the preacher's classroom. This is a lengthy text, so I want to encourage you to actively engage your mind and your heart as I read the most important part of this sermon, for this is the word of God. Ecclesiastes 6, starting in verse 10. 
Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity, and what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? Chapter 7. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance and advantage to those who see the sun, for the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful, and in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. In my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to your heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? I turn my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom in the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out 
many schemes. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. Wow, that's a lot, right? What we're going to see here as we examine this text is that death teaches us to be wise about the life we live, but we find that even the deepest kind of wisdom that we can obtain is insufficient to explain the perplexities of life in a fallen world. Only our faith in God can stabilize us in a world full of confusing realities that we can't account for. You may be surprised, I only have two points. You're reading this, remember you're thinking it's like a 12 point or something, just two. Here they are. First, death makes us wise, but even that wisdom has its limits, point two. So first, death makes us wise. Verses 10 through 12 serve as a transition between the first half of this book and the second. The preacher reiterates themes he has covered previously. For instance, in Ecclesiastes 3, 14 and 15, We read, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor taken anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. Furthermore, the preacher says, man is not able to dispute with one stronger than him. We should understand he's speaking about God himself. That is the one. And more words are simply more vanity. They are hollow and empty. Talk all you want. You cannot change the plans and purposes of a sovereign God. Verse 12, he transitions to the matter at hand. We all live, when it's all said and done, a few days of a brief and passing life, and then we die, and who can tell what comes after? And we remember the preacher is speaking again with an under-the-sun perspective, just really with the observable world. Chapter 7, he lays out a long list of proverbs, that at first glance may appear to be a random collection, but in fact serve a fairly unified purpose. In verses 1 through 6, he presents us with statements that we may find confusing. So verse 1, a good name is better than precious ointment. Precious ointment representing costly luxury. In other words, character is more valuable than riches. Good. Proverbs 22.1 says a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches and favor is better than silver or gold. But then instead of going where Proverbs does, there's a twist in verse 1. The day of death is better than the day of birth. Huh? That's a downer. You know, I mean, how, how does that work? Is the preacher like some goth dude who shuffles around moping dressed in black with eyeliner on who's really into death? It's better than being born. As we read over verses two through four, his meaning becomes clearer. He says, better to go to the house of mourning, in our day a funeral home, than to the house of feasting because this is the end of all mankind and the living will lay it to heart. What we observe at a funeral when applied to our hearts, the preacher says, is more instructive than a visit, for instance, to Harrisburg Hospital to see a friend's newborn baby. Verse 4, he says, the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. In other words, death teaches us wisdom. It reminds us of our own mortality so that we live realistically, 
unlike described here, the fool in the house of mirth. The fool who is about distracting themselves from thinking about death or seeking to escape from the thought. Verse 3, he tells us that sorrow is better than laughter. You might think, well, I'll sign up for the laughter. By sadness of face, the heart is made glad. What's he talking about here? Well, he's saying superficial people sort of live in the clouds seeking to distract themselves from harsh realities. Realistic people know what it's like to feel deeply. Only those who know and feel and live realistically with the sadness of life feel the fullness of gladness in the happiness of life. In other words, the wisdom that death teaches us makes us people of substance. He continues to instruct us about wisdom as he contrasts the wise and the foolish in verses 5 and 6. He says, better to hear a rebuke from the wise than the song of fools. Verse 6, the mirth, the songs, the laughter of those who don't deal honestly with reality. It's just an irritating cackling, like thorns popping in a fire. It's empty. It's vain. These verses call us to live wisely in light of death. In the classroom of wisdom, death has a central place in our instruction. Psalm 90 verse 12 says, So teach us to number our days so that we may get a heart of wisdom. It's central. He's not describing a call to have a sort of morbid obsession with death. No. A sober-minded, realistic view of our lives and our death that moves us from foolish denial to wise choices in the here and now. We had two memorial services in the past few weeks. Bob and Ronnie, as those dearly loved went to be with Christ. Amy and the kids and Rodney, we we love you. One thing I was grateful for in their battle is that they suffered well. They both did. They fought hard against the cancer, but they did not fight against God. They entrusted themselves to God. But listen, there are lessons to learn if we will apply their passing to our hearts. That's what the preacher's saying. Let us not miss the lessons that God intends for us. David Gibson in his fine book, Living Life Backwards, says, the day of death is better than the day of birth, not because death is better than life, it's not, but because a coffin is a better preacher than a cot. When life ends or is about to end, absolutely everything else comes into focus. The things that don't really matter, but which we gave so much time to, now seem so empty and pointless. The lives we touched and the generosity we showed And the love we gave or received now means so much more. I was looking up some stats last week. Based on current smartphone usage, it is estimated that the average person 
with a smartphone will spend, this is shocking, 76,500 hours over their lifetime on their phone, or nine years. In 2019, Netflix estimated that each day in total, Netflix was watched 154 million hours a day. Listen, I like my iPhone and I'm into Netflix. But listen, we got one shot at this. We have one life. What will we do with it? The preacher, God's word is encouraging us to ensure that we don't give so much time to things that are in the end empty and pointless. The reality of our coming death is intended to orient our lives now so that we don't give our lives so many hours to things that are empty and pointless but invigorate us to be faithful in the here and now and to ensure that we are giving ourselves to those things that ultimately matter. Giving and receiving love, generosity, and so forth. Death instructs us, makes us wise about our lives. But, point two, that wisdom has its limits. In verses 7 through 10, we find challenges to wisdom. Verse 7, power and money can corrupt even the wise. Proverbs 17, 8 says, A bribe is like a magic stone in the eyes of the one who gives it. And here he says that the wise can be enchanted by bribes, even though they are wise and power and will oppress Verse 8, pride and impatience can undermine wisdom. Verse 9, anger can turn a wise man or woman into a fool. It's true. Have you ever met a person so consumed with anger and bitterness that they are incapable of thinking or seeing things clearly? I know I have. That's why James says in his letter, chapter 1, verse 19, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Verse 10, living in the past can make one foolish. Why were the former days better than these, is the question. So we are called here to appreciate, but not pine for the good old days. Listen, nostalgia, while pleasant, can be a trap. And we all can tend to see the past with rose-colored glasses instead of thinking realistically, and this is a call for us to live in the moment. Maybe you think, oh, I wish some of us might think this. You know, let's just pick a time, the 1950s. That seemed like a better time, you know, more innocent more simple, more people seem to be okay with the Bible, more people seem to agree more about biblical virtues and morality. And yet, in the 1950s, we saw the wickedness of Jim Crow laws that demeaned and dehumanized black women and men and children. We were in the middle of a Cold War with Russia the threat of nuclear holocaust, and we ridiculously had kids hiding under their desks at school. 
Listen, the wise acknowledge and understand that every generation has its challengings and shortcomings and suffering and sin. So we appreciate what was good in the past, but we live in the here and now. Verses 11 and 12, he reaffirms the value of wisdom. He says it's good. It's an advantage. It's like money in that both preserve life. In other words, money and wisdom make life better. The good thing's more accessible. And then he presents the biggest limitation to wisdom, the plans and purposes of God. Verse 13, he says, who can make straight what he, God, has made crooked? In other words, in all of our best wisdom and thinking, in the end, we have no power to change God's design or his purpose. He accomplishes all that he wills, and who can stay his hand? Isaiah 14, 27 says, For the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? Listen, not us, not even the very wisest. Verse 14, the preacher says, Since God is in charge sovereignly of prosperity and adversity, and you cannot change that, be joyful in prosperity. In other words, enjoy the happy days. They are gifts from God. And in adversity, in the difficult season, realize that God has a purpose in that as well. They are both from his hand, from a good and faithful God. We remember this so that we are not tempted in the day of adversity to think hard thoughts about God. Instead, we trust him. He gives and he takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Verses 15 through 18. He gives us one of something we can relate to, one of the biggest challenges or limitations to wisdom. Because here's the deal. Wisdom books like Proverbs or the wisdom of Psalm 1, they present principles but not rules in the observable world. Where we read things like, well, the righteous prosper, but the wicked are not so, they perish Anyone with half a brain knows that it doesn't always seem to play out like that, at least not with what we see. He says the righteous perish in his righteousness, and you don't have to look far to see a wicked man live a long life. Robert Murray McShane, who gave us the wonderful reminder that for every look at self, take 10 looks at Christ. He was dead at 29. And the murderous tyrant, Chairman Mao, under whose reign 40 to 80 million Chinese people died, well, he lived to the ripe old age of 82. Wisdom principles in Scripture are important. They are valuable. They are given for our good and prosperity. But oftentimes, we see, as the preacher observes, things don't seem to line up. The world is confusing. It's a perplexing place. Here's a weird statement. Verses 16 and 17. Don't be overly righteous or overly wicked. Is that a head scratcher to you? 
I, I thought the pursuit of righteousness is vital and we should reject all wickedness, but it sort of sounds like he's saying, well, a little wickedness, that's good, just not too much. And some righteousness, good, but don't get too righteous. You know, I mean, what's he calling us, to be, to be nominal Christians? Well, remember, there's a couple things to remember. Some of the things he says are difficult for us to navigate to our modern ears. The preacher is observing life under the sun, so much of what he says is what he observes. And I think this is what he's saying. He says, don't live as if a superior righteousness and wisdom will earn you a long and prosperous life. If you're super righteous, you'll live a long time. And when he says don't be overly wicked, it's because he knows that all of us are sinners by nature. He will say that. But he's saying do not give yourself over to that wickedness and foolishness. Rather, fear God. Sidney Gradanus, in his wonderful book, Preaching Christ from Ecclesiastes, says, in our world, there is a great danger of falling into the hands of wickedness. In today's context, we can like wickedness, liken it to a black hole in space. A black hole gradually sucks in and destroys everything that comes within range. Once something is caught, there is no escape possible. Wickedness in this world has the same fatal attraction. Sniffing some drugs to feel good may not seem so bad at first, but before long, one is a drug addict. Watching pornography may seem rather innocent at first, but it will soon become an addiction. Even something perfectly acceptable in our society, the pursuit of wealth can lead to an addiction. He says, do not give yourself over to wickedness. That's what he's getting at. Verse 19. Again, he affirms wisdom. It gives great strength to us. But, verse 20, even the most righteous and wise among us are sinners still. And so you can attain to the greatest wisdom and righteousness and you will still be a sinner. You cannot solve that problem. In light of that, verse 21, a little humility is called for when offended by someone bad-mouthing you because you have done the same, he says. Verses 23 and 24. The end of the matter when it comes to navigating through this world, even in wisdom, the explanation for many of the perplexing and difficult realities of life in a fallen world, they're just beyond our grasp. They are far off, he says. It is deep, very deep. Who can find it out? Deuteronomy 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and our children forever. And then he concludes, verses 25 through 29, by informing us again, as he previously has throughout this book, about his quest for wisdom. Verse 26, he says he finds something more bitter than death, an adulterous temptress of a woman. There will be some who escape her temptations, but even a wise sinner can be taken in. And do we not hear stories about this with men and women both engaged in this every day? And here, I think, in a larger picture, we find a principle and a warning about pursuing folly. Verse 29, he says, He searched high and low for truly righteous people, but he came up short. One man among a thousand and not one woman. Listen, he's not speaking broadly about the ladies. He's just getting at it. He, he's having a lot of trouble finding these righteous people. 
Verse 29, he concludes, God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. And here, he affirms and reminds us that though men and women, we were created innocent and holy in the fall of Adam in the garden, and we each, having been born in Adam, are born in sin, and therefore, our inclination is to seek out many schemes apart from grace. Schemes to sin. Schemes to seek to control or avoid God. It's in our nature. Okay. What shall we do with all this? How can we apply this to our lives? I have a number of ways. First, learn the lessons of the funeral home. We are all headed there. What will we do with this one brief life we've been given? We do want to ask ourselves that question regularly. It won't be long before I will be in that funeral home. What will I do between now and then that will glorify God and love others? Second, Throughout Scripture, we are called to pursue wisdom as a precious treasure. Make no mistake, lest you feel a sort of a wet blanket being thrown on the pursuit of wisdom. That, that's not the intent of all. Actually, wisdom from God is a precious treasure that we are called to cry out to God for. We are commanded, in fact, to pursue wisdom, and it is profitable for our life and Godliness, but we do so aware of temptations that seek to draw us into foolishness. He described them love of money, impatience, anger, living in the past. So we reject those things in the pursuit of wisdom. Third, we understand that life is often perplexing. It doesn't line up with what we might think it should. Listen, we, we are called to pursue righteousness and wisdom. It is a calling we have for those who have trusted Christ and are following him, but there is not a tit-for-tat arrangement with God in this. Something like, if I seek to do good and be faithful to God, then my life will be happy and easy. And one, when facing adversity and suffering, may have those kinds of complaints. God, I've been faithful. I've been following you. I've been seeking to do what's right. Why are you doing this to me? I don't deserve this. I remember years ago sitting with a man whose marriage was failing and his children were rebellious who complained why is this happening to me? I did my part. We remember that his will is preeminent. And when life is confusing and we don't have an answer to our why questions, why is this happening? We rest in his will. We make his glory central. He gives and he takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Richard Belcher in his commentary on Ecclesiastes says, although we cannot know what the future may bring, we know the God of the future and his good purposes will triumph. 
and when we care for others who are in suffering and adversity, we refrain from becoming like Job's friends and talking to them as if they have a tit-for-tat arrangement with God. Well, well, how have you sinned? What's the explanation for this? Job was the most righteous man on earth. Finally, most importantly, we acknowledge our sin and our need for grace. To be sure, all who have trusted in Christ, we do hunger and thirst for righteousness. But we remember we will never attain to the perfect righteousness that is needed to stand in the right before God. We do not make God indebted to us because of our pursuit of righteousness. And this is implicitly, I think, a warning for all who think they can earn God's favor through the pursuit of doing what's right. Providentially, I didn't know John earlier in communion was going to use this verse, but I have it in here, so maybe someone needs to hear it twice. Romans 10, 2 through 4 says, For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. So he's speaking about conscientious Jewish converts or people who think being a convert means pursuing obedience to the law. But he says, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. In his substitutionary death on our behalf, we read of a great exchange happening. Yes, There is not a righteous person, the preacher says, who has not sinned. We deserve judgment because of our sin, but in Christ's death, there has been an exchange. The righteous for the unrighteous. Our sin, our failure placed upon the perfect, obedient Son of God, his righteousness accounted as ours. That is our great hope before God, not our personal wisdom, not our personal righteousness. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Let me close with this. The preacher reminds us that death teaches us wisdom for life now. It's really important, but it's limited The wisdom that we gain from contemplating our death is intended by God to provoke within us a passion and purpose, knowing that we have just this one life to live and it will soon be over. Our best thinking and efforts will always fall short to ultimately extend that reality or to explain the perplexing realities we are surrounded by and the suffering we endure Our best thinking and efforts can never atone for our sin each and every day in the end. All is Christ. We need Christ. Christ our Savior. Christ our wisdom. Christ our kind and sovereign master. And so to him be the glory forever and ever. Amen.